It's Rusty Diamond, motherfucker. Miss Rusty, what is up, everybody? It is Tuesday here on the Quantum Global Broadcasting Network, QGBN. And I'm your host, Rusty Diamond, on the Public Access Podcast, the podcast. Check out other great shows on the network, such as When the Gloves Come Off, the Thinking Man's Pro Wrestling Podcast, this is it with Lizzie and Saved by the Ben. Show is brought to you by Fred Ben Savage's Fuck Stone Reads Productions. Hardcore Entertainment, Hypnosis is Great, and Sockemup.org. Thank you, everyone, for being here. If you want, you can come and leave a message, and I'll play it on the here. Or maybe you don't want to leave a message, and that's fine. Messages? Messages? We don't leave no stinking messages! But I do. So give those a call. 503-974-6420. Leave a message. And I'll play it here on, on the play. Play place. Pee-wee's Playhouse. The p- podcast. Who knows, man? Maybe uh, maybe fucking Cowboy Curtis will show up here. Or Missy Vaughn. Or who knows? Who knows? Maybe Cherry or Terry. I don't know. Anyway, you guys, I want to bring on my guest, who's I don't believe has any connection with Pee Wee's Playhouse, but maybe. <laughs> but uh, I'm bringing my special guest on here, right here, right now. We have Doctor Fred. How are you doing, Doctor Fred? Hey, Rusty. Good to be here. Thanks for having me. Really great to see you. Yeah, absolutely. Likewise. Uh, so. Uh, I see in the background you you have a, a trampoline. Are you a trampolinist? Is I don't know if that's the yeah a rebounder. A rebounder is one way to look at it. But yeah, I do a little bit of rebounding here and there. I win that. I got to pull the trampoline down off the mantle, of course, to use it. Uh, yeah. So, what do you do on there? Are you are you jumping for a while? What's or is that, no, is that a normally? I I had a pretty significant medical event in uh, a few months ago, so normally I just do kind of some walking on it. I, before that, I was doing a little more jumping, but I had a I had a uh, life threatening event in March, and so that was uh, really changed the way that I handle myself physically. And so when that, I don't know if you want to get into this sure. at all. That, so what what happened then? Uh, I was actually working out in this room. Uh, this was the computer, and I was over there and um, uh, doing some stretching. And I felt something pop, and my um, my trainer is like, "Do you have a cramp?" And I was like, "No, dude, this is not a cramp." And it turned out that it was a uh, a dissecting ruptured aortic aneurysm uh, coming Whoa. right out of my heart. So my aorta split like a bad pair of pants right into my chest. And, uh, that's a big deal, of course. So, I mean, what, what happened yet? Your trainer was watching you. He was on... watching me online. Yeah. He was so, from... yeah. Did he call nine one one or did no, you... he told me to go find, go find my wife, which I did. And then we called nine one one and they came over here in about five, five or 10 minutes and 
uh, brought me to the local hospital, which didn't have any kind of the facilities necessary to actually deal with something this big. So they transferred me 50 miles away into Sacramento and took a truck. And, um, and sure enough, Dr. Rodriguez was waiting for me and split my chest open down the middle and did open heart surgery, emergency open heart surgery on that day. Whoa. And so nothing like this had happened before? No, and I absolutely. Just... Of course not. No, not even close. And I was like, the... a beast. I'm a beast. You know, I, I was uh, doing, working out every day and uh, taking great care of myself and the whole thing. And then so what what happened once you woke up then from after this procedure well after the procedure uh, they put me in the icu they gave me a kind of a too small of a bed for a few days until i finally got a bed that was at least six three which i am and i continued to recover in the icu and um you know did step by step uh, in the hospital setting and sure enough i got let out my uh, got you know good care taking care of me since then I'm eating well and drinking well. Everything is working. I'm thinking. I'm in, you know, creating conversations, still coaching and, um, you know, creating podcasts and still writing all these things. So I have a new lease on life, of course, and a new way of looking at uh, how to go, how to go about what it is that I do here. Why am I even here in the first place after all? And so has your approach changed with how you're, you're coaching after this? Has that changed anything or is that stayed sort of constant or yeah I think the actual approach hasn't shifted so much it's just a new there's a new resolve you know a new understanding that no fluff no frills no gimmicks I'm just a good coach and uh, you know I'm a good coach with a ton of experience and I can walk people through the next phase of their life if they want some assistance in making their life work and that's just what I do you know and I I, uh, instead of competing with all the frills that are out there, you know, there's all sorts of gimmicks and all sorts of like editing and all sorts of promotional styles and marketing and music and flashy, uh, you know, flashy, um, shiny objects and things that people use to get as if that represents a good coach. I really just get that. I'm here to just help people through the next phase of their life. And I'm pretty experienced at it and pretty good at it. And, um, you know, just a matter of that's, that's just what I do. And if someone wants assistance with getting through the next phase of their life, I might be a good person to tap on and see if that's going to be a good combination. So you said you're living in Northern California, but yeah. you sound like you're from Michigan. Is I that am from Michigan. It's true. Uh, where, whereabouts on the mitten are you? I am uh, in the Detroit area is where I grew up. Okay. Yeah. All right. Okay. Yeah. I, I caught on to that. And it wasn't making sense for a little bit. I'm like, this guy says California doesn't, does not sound like California, but. And where so, in Michigan are you from? I'm not, I'm not from Michigan. I, I have some people that I, uh, am, am close with that are from Michigan. So, okay. um, I was actually looking at a place. A few years back, maybe yeah, two or three years ago, but it was over on the on the west coast of Michigan, so the other side of the state. But mm-hmm. yeah, I was looking at some um, like getting a place out there, but yeah, it didn't pan out. But um, it's okay. Yeah, I was it was all right by me, and I ended up where I ended up, and I'm I'm glad with where I ended up. Yeah, so. that's great. Where are you now? Uh, I'm in Connecticut right now. Okay. I've kind of, yeah, kind of been all over the last 
four years. Um, I was in a couple of places in Minnesota and then I was in Salt Lake City <laughs> and then, yeah, now I'm out in Connecticut. So, okay. yeah, but I was in Portland, Oregon before that for forever. Right. So, yeah, yeah, kind of, kind of all over, lots of moving, but yes. Yeah, how life goes so yeah it is you know you just find yourself uh wherever you find yourself and sometimes you move from place to place like a rolling stone right and so what what brought you out from michigan to uh to california was that oh it's a long ride it was a long ride it wasn't directly from michigan to california but um i uh i I lived in michigan and then i um went to school you know i wanted i grew up in michigan and I was really enchanted with the whole idea of uh, communication. I had two older brothers and um, my parents and they were talking a lot and I wanted to learn how to talk well. And in elementary school, there is no elementary school teacher who's forgotten having me as a student, for sure. I talked a lot in school. I was a um, sort of a, the class clown and I was pretty smart because I had these brothers who taught me how to be pretty precocious. and. Um, uh, eventually I ended up going to the university of Michigan after a school failed me. Like I just wanted to really learn how to communicate and there was no room for communication in any of the conventional, uh, educational system in junior high or high school. So I thought that would happen in Ann Arbor. And I went to Ann Arbor, uh, for a little bit and then dropped out of there because that wasn't very good either. And I came out here to Berkeley, at least that was my first ride to, uh, California to find myself. And that kind of worked okay, but I only lasted a summer and I was convinced to go back and try school one more time. Um, And I did that. Uh, There was a new industry that my family was really curious about whether I'd be good at. It was the up and coming industry of the future. It was something called computers. And the only thing, I think I heard heard something, something about that. Yeah. Somewhere. Yeah, computers were the the only computer in Michigan was at the University of Michigan at the time. So I went back to the University of Michigan, tried that out for a little while. And I didn't want to do batch jobs and punch cards. So I left again. And this time promised never to go back to school. But uh, I got a job working in a state mental health facility with adolescent boys. And there I began to really communicate effectively and really began to heal and to coach. I mean, that's really when the whole thing started. And uh that was in 1980. And what I really learned is that communication and connection is at the heart of all healing of all conditions of all types all the time. And I really decided that psychiatry, I didn't like psychiatry at all. I went into psychiatry because I disliked it. And I thought that it needed a big shift. So I went in with the idea that I might be able to bring communication to a field that was already headed in some ways down the pharmacological route. And uh, Prozac got introduced introduced to the world while I was training. That totally changed the world drastically. And I continued to want to be a communicator. But when I came out of my training, there I was already typecast to be a diagnoser and a, and a psychopharmacologist because that's what psychiatrists do. For the next 30 years, that's what I ended up doing. And, and not, very, not very happy about most of it, very duplicitously. And so... Were you speaking out against it or was that would that kind of had red flagged you and uh, put you not in the good yeah you know, with the board of psychology? Well, the, the board the board wouldn't have cared so much if I spoke out, but I didn't speak out that much. I just ended up being somebody who tried to 
you know, nudge in communication along the sides, along with uh, medicating people. And uh, my, you know, I often told my um, my colleagues and my peers that I thought that medicines didn't do what they were supposed to do. And sometimes they actually cause more problems than they help. And sometimes they perpetuate the symptoms they're marketed to treat or even cause the symptoms they're marketed to treat. So in 2006, as you know, a decade and a half later, I started doing something radical, which was uh, apparently it's radical, was just take people off of medicine. And in two, I took my clients off of medicine and lo and behold, they got reliably way better, you know, and uh, so they got way better than they were even when they started. And oftentimes the diagnosis just slipped away. And uh, I really began to learn that these medicines were not not here, were doing what they were supposed to. And I began to speak up a little bit more after that. And so how were your patients reacting when you said that you wanted to take them off the medication? Were they some hesitant or were some pretty excited about the opportunity of not having to? Yeah, I only took the ones off who were excited about it. And almost everyone was excited about it because it turns out that most people really just don't like taking medicine to change the way they think. And also, you know, these things, they tend to be very muting and muffling and stifling these medicines. They tend to really not only, they tend to be over-inclusive in what they kind of stop. The antidepressants stop, may stop for a moment your depression, but they stop every other mood too. And so that can get pretty old, the whole blunting aspect. So my patients were pretty happy that I was doing that, especially since when they get their lives back, they got their own freedom and their power returned to them. And people generally respect that. And so what what year was this, you said? That was about 2006 when I started doing that. Okay. And so uh, so what was kind of the ones, the prescriptions they were trying to push then around 2006 when you decided to? Oh, they're Get not them. that different, not that different than the ones now, you know, the antidepressants, the anti-anxiety agents, the antipsychotics, the anti-convulsants for, you know, mood disorder. Um, so, you know, Zoloft and Prozac and Paxil and Wellbutrin and Effexor as the antidepressants and then the antipsychotics like uh, Zyprexa or Seroquel or Respiradol or, you know, Haldol or any of the older ones and then the anti-anxiety agents as well. Xanax and Ativan and Clonopin and the anticonvulsants, which is, uh, you know, sort of Dep Depakote, Integritol and Gabapentin and those. And so, so, okay. So then once, once everyone of your clients who decided to stop were off it, what were they, I mean, how were they acting? How, how were they, what were they telling you? Did, you know, where people oh, in just... general, there was usually a remarkable change in their attitude because they really would get their life back. These medicines really don't do what they say they do. I mean, they really tend to be very muting and very muffling. And uh, so these are people that were really generally quite happy to have their life back. Now, in some situations, ironically, um, the families didn't want their person to have their life back. The family liked the person being sick and they would be hesitant. They like the person before the, you know, the person would start talking and start saying their truth. And it wasn't really welcome in a system where there might have been secrets or might have been things that they didn't want to hear. So the person became a little bit more free to actually be themselves. And not every system was ready to have the identified patient become somebody who could actually speak their mind. And there, that's, just... where, the, that's oh. where the pushback came from. 
you can't just get people lobotomy anymore either. You can't do the uh, the old Kennedy method of uh, yeah, giving out. Yeah, I assume that's not really a thing. But I mean, so these medicines are really all about lobotomy. They're all about chemical lobotomy. In fact, when Thorazine was first invented, that was the whole draw to it is a understanding that Thorazine could do the same thing that a lobotomy did through a pill. That was why it oh. was so exciting. Okay. And so, I mean, so when did, I mean, is that still something that's even still prescribed? Is that, oh, yeah. or is that? Oh yeah. These medicines still are prescribed for sure. And so are you, I mean, obviously yeah, you're not for those. And so, I mean, are you, since you are, are you still considered part of the uh, psychology community or psychiatry? Psychiatry. Yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah, I'm a doctor. I'm an MD and I don't do any conventional work anymore. I call myself the undoctor because I undiagnose people, I unmedicate people, and then I undoctrinate people. And so, I mean, so. Once people, I guess, yeah, are on Thorazine or other mm -hmm. drugs like that, is there any coming back from it, or is it? It's a good question. Some of these, some of these, uh, some of these medicines do have long-term effects. It appears long after they even are stopped. You know, some of the conditions that they're called side effects sometimes they last on, like the Thorazine. And the antipsychotics have a couple of different associated conditions that are associated with it long-term, even after you stop, like tardive dyskinesia would be one of those. Um, and that's like a movement disorder that uh, even lasts longer than the drug itself. But in, you know, in most cases, our bodies are so resilient and so capable of healing as long as we treat them right, that we can recover from nearly everything and get, you know, you know, there's people who have recovered from massive, massive events and massive diseases and conditions and, you know, find themselves back to normal because our bodies are, are remarkable machines that really want to heal. And so we can usually heal from, uh, from a run of psychiatric medicines as well. And so did you have any patients that were on Thorazine or something like that when they, when they came to you or did that, was that something that no, I, I'm certain we acquire patients that have all sorts of medicine. So over time, I certainly acquired patients. I don't think I started very many patients on Thorazine, but uh, there was a lot of patients who came into my practice already taking that medicine. I'm mean, not just Thorazine, there are many drugs that are Thorazine-like that, uh, you know, so you don't have to focus specifically on Thorazine. Thorazine is just one of the oldest ones. So what are some of the other ones? like Haldol or Trilophon or Respiradol or Zyprexa, Seroquel, Geodon. Those are the antipsychotics. And so as far as seeing stuff uh, on TV as commercials or, you know, do you have this kind of go, go talk to your, your doctor of sorts and, um, I mean, you you don't see commercials for that. I mean, you see commercials for everything else, but there's, is that just something that, well, I mean, was there ever commercials for? I have no idea. I'm sure there was. They've been very well marketed to the doctors. That's the, the targeted population for this would be the doctors because 
the patients don't come in asking for those medicines. They come in with a set of uh, complaints or concerns and the doctor is trained to hear different buzzwords and then start these medicines if he hears them. And so you were also saying about having a family member who may, you know, spill some secrets or something. Um, how, how were they being treated kind of before they ended up wanting to, you know, give them some sort of quote unquote treatment? Uh, I, I'm not sure I understand that. it. Well, I'm not sure I understand the question exactly. So if people, if those families who are trying to hold one of their family members back with um, with what would eventually become, you know, giving them Thorazine or lobotomy or, you know, whatever, this, if they're the same. Uh, what, do you know what, if there were any, um, any things they were, the families were doing to these other family members beforehand? And then all of a sudden, you know, this option came up to do this is that making sense or is that still not yeah sense? there's all sorts of different ways to enter the system you know even right now you bring somebody if you bring your family member even your wife or your spouse or your child or your parent to the emergency room and you say that they're seeing napoleon or they're acting weird or they pick up a knife and threaten me or they um you know forgot their name or they no longer can find their car or you say whatever you say that's an entryway into the psychiatric system. And once you get that done, then it's really no holds bar what the psychiatric system might throw at you, including institutionalization or any of the different medicine regimens that are out there. Because in California, there's the, the 5150. Uh, right. Which every state is, has, has involuntary laws, just like the 5150. So is that like a, is it all kind of the same as 72 uh, up to 72 hours? Is right. that right? 72 something? hour hold. And I must, I think every state has a, something very close to a three day hold associated with it. And you just, it doesn't take very much to get somebody, you know, put on a three day hold. It, I, it, it takes very little, actually, extremely little. And so has there been any sort of fight back or pushback with that, be, be with any, uh, any, people like yourself or anything like that are trying to, or is the, do you think that the three-day hold's a good thing for the no, most of course part? I don't. Or? Of course, I don't think the three-day hold is necessarily a good thing, but the pushback, there hasn't been an adequate pushback in any way to actually make any difference. I think uh, most people believe that they, if they, that the law itself or the, um, cascade the sequence of 5150 is put in place to keep the community safe so people get the idea that if someone's dangerous to themselves or dangerous to others they should be able to go to a safe place like a hospital and be put in against their will and then monitored and observed and see if there's any real problem and that's the essence of the, why why the 5150 persists is the idea of you know somehow making the world safe again against the people uh, who might deserve a 5150 or something, but 5150s are so easy to invoke, you know, and that's that's where the real problem comes in. And so with the- Oh, I don't lot... hear you. I miss it. Oh. One second. Okay. One second. Let's try again. Okay. Can you hear me? Yes. Okay. So 
with a lot of these facilities that were housing a lot of long-term patients closing down, where do you think that's kind of left whoever whoever may have been in there before? Or do you think that those places were necessary uh, to have around? Or do you think there are, there are better ways to work with long-term inpatient? Well, they're, they're basic hell holes for sure. So you wouldn't want anybody that you love treated in most of those places. Uh, the asylums are very much like a prison. Uh, you know, the walls are, are the same, that you have equal access to getting out, which is zero. Uh, you're held behind, you know, essentially behind, um, you know, closed doors, and locked doors, and uh, they are uh, tremendous intrusions on basic human rights. Um, so I don't, you know, it's like saying, do I, uh, am I opposed to prisons? Am I opposed to jails? And that's a much more of like a philosophical question. Um, which is like, is there such thing as a, as a person who's better off uh, away from the away from the world? Is that you know who it, it, it's certainly not a place to be safe. The idea that it's safer in there in the than in the world is a complete um, you know myth. It's not safer in a hospital or safer in a jail than it is outside in the community here. As far as the people around them or for the person that's going into In it. both cases, in both cases, yeah. And so do you have a better solution or is that like if there was one, hopefully they'd be going towards it or? Well, if I was to give it? a better solution, it maybe uh, rubs up against some people like it does. It's not sure for anybody is that what people want more than anything is to be heard for who they are. You might notice that, it, you know, when I worked in the prisons or I work in the jails or I work in the inpatient units or I work in the nursing homes where there's locked doors, but what, where my success comes in is when I can have a conversation with someone and respect them and accept them and forgive them and love them for who they are. When people feel like they're heard and gotten for really who they are, there's a tremendous amount of healing that happens instantaneously. And that's what we're talking about here. And so... I mean, what percentage of people that uh, hypothetically, this is a hard question then, uh, would benefit uh, if you, what percentage? I mean, yeah, I mean, percentage of people who could possibly become helped by being heard if the people who are already in the system. A hundred percent of people can be helped by being heard. There's no, there's no person who can't be helped by being hurt. You, me, everyone. That what we want more than anything is to be hurt. And so, why is that? So, the wild truth of that that is it just because it's easier to not get to that part and keep people in this perpetual state of this kind of people are strange you know and people are violent in their needs they have their own wants and, and their own they have their own um deficiencies and their own um you know core wounds etc and people are people can be very mean to each other people can be really you know there's a climbing on other people's back claiming an us versus them 
that those people over there are worse than us, you know, that we have the right way of doing things and I have the wrong way to do things. And, you know, that those kind of people should be eliminated from society that, you know, this is not a new phenomenon. This is part of the human condition. And, um, you know, listening to someone that you disagree with is a difficult chore, as you know, in the last few years, people have a hard time listening to somebody who disagrees with them on fundamental issues. They tend to right. just close, close them out. Yeah, I mean, I experienced that a whole bunch. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And I, I mean, I uh, saw a lot of people lose a lot of friends and just because, yeah, like you're saying, I don't want to hear this person or, you know, I only want to hear Anything. people who, who think the same way I do. I just right. want to hear what what I'm doing is right, which is, you know, kind of the same thing, them wanting to be heard and feeling that their uh their thoughts are valid and and being heard whereas they're doing the yeah the same thing of i don't want to hear this person and then kind of wondering why people are getting upset when they're like they don't even want to you know not even giving someone the chance to to explain their their point of view or you know trying exactly. to yeah trying to find as many differences as possible without trying to find any common ground and, exactly yeah losing the gray area and you know if with, with then there's always balance in everything and you got to have you know both extremes you got to have a bunch of gray in the middle and and without right. that there's no no real existence and so it becomes sort of this fabricated fantasy land of as long as only i believe that you know these people these people that think exactly the same as me until something comes along and no matter if there's 99 other things they're perfectly aligned on if this one thing that they are aligned on all of a sudden they're 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 out of the group and it's and just becomes sort of a uh, you know kind of waiting game when 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 is my turn going to be up when uh, when is the <laughs> when is the the society going to turn on me right and and yeah i mean i just think yeah that being able to yeah listen to people is important even yeah i mean if you disagree with them and it's okay to disagree with people and sure as long as yeah well, i mean as long as they're being heard and that's uh and so when so you're not working with any of these like prisons or um, any of that stuff anymore. Right. I'm not doing that. Not, I'm not doing any institutional conventional psychiatric work anymore because all they really wanted me to do was diagnose and medicate people. And I just can't do that anymore. So what was the breaking point that you got to where you said, I'm done with this? Like, yeah, this is it. So 2006, what I described, that was one breaking point when I started taking people off of medicine. But there were several times in 2000, 
uh, 10, I was working in a prison in Indiana and, uh, uh, and it was actually, it wasn't a prison. It was a psychiatric hospital, but, um, it could have been a prison. It just wasn't. And they were asking me to do things like, uh, extend people's stay, like, you know, sign off on why this person should be here another year. And, um, I didn't often think that the person should be there another year. I thought that they were actually okay, but I wasn't allowed to actually write that. Instead, my job was to, uh, extend everybody who showed up in my office to another year. And I just finally had to quit that job. So did the people that were in there, the patients, were they then, you know, like they're, they're all go, they're going in to talk to you thinking that maybe this is my chance to get out, but then before then they're fine you know they're learning that they're going to have another year or something are they going back to the other patients and saying that this guy and just kind of maybe putting blame on you or you well they should that, put that blame on me they should i'm the one who signs off on this stuff i'm i am the blame i'm the reason they have to stay another year and that was un intolerable so i had to quit that job as well i quit a number yeah. of jobs in my career what other what other jobs have you quit? Well, I had a lot of jobs in nursing. I, you know, psychiatry really asked the doctor to do many different things that I wasn't aligned with, including medicating people that didn't need medication or giving people diagnoses that I didn't think they met the criteria for. Actually, just clamping down on civil rights and clamping down on people's capacity to actually live a free life, rather than, rather than just being disturbed in what otherwise is a very disturbing world. Like it's okay to be disturbed in an otherwise very disturbing world. It's okay to be depressed in a depressing world. It's okay to be nervous about a future that's very uncertain. And it's okay to be confused. It's okay to be scattered. It's okay not to get your work done. It's okay to be afraid that people are watching you. It's all okay because all those things are happening. Right. And so are you having people that... How do I say this? So um, I guess other professionals, are, are, they, are there other professionals around that are doing sort of the same work as you are that are upset with you or like publicly upset with you or if they, anyone called you up and started saying, hey, why are you doing this? Why are you exposing what's going on? Uh, you're hurting my livelihood or is that? I'm sure there are people who believe that, but I, so far I haven't been harassed very often by that group. Um, you know, I think the, the mental health field is clearly very broken and I don't think that that's a secret to anybody. It's not like the system is working. We don't have yeah. very good evidence that the mental health system is working. So this, you know, the people stand on their high horse and tell me that the mental health system is working. They're the ones who are going to look pretty foolish. Right. And so, yeah. And so then there's just the whole getting to the, uh, a better mental health situation. And I mean, so two of the things you said were, yeah, taking people off of these drugs and listening to making sure everyone feels that they're heard 
Uh, is there is there anything else that you would feel would be beneficial as well to the well, advancement? When, of... when you're when you're listening to people so that they're heard, you might want to get that there might be nothing wrong with them, no matter what you think. You might think that someone who thinks like that, or who does that, or who looks like that, or who cares for themselves that way, or they uh, wear those kind of clothes, or they hang out in that kind of atmosphere, that there's something wrong, you know, homeless people or something like that, you might think there's something wrong with them. But when you're listening to someone for their true and honest self, I invite people to really just drop all those preconceptions and get that all that's really there is another human being trying to get through life just like you. And when you can do that, when you can get that you're not that different from anybody else in the world, you might get that there's that mental illness itself is simply a vague and um, nebulous conversation that's subject to uh, full scale transformation of the narrative. And so do you think that there are, I mean, so there's a lot of other people who are doing, you know, other kinds of, of coaching work um, to kind of, I guess, yeah, kind of get away from the the rest of, you know, um, you know, not really buying into the the mental health game that's going on. And so, uh, is there a community between other thinkers like yourself, or is it sort of everyone for themselves, and hopefully enough people make enough noise? Well, there's not a lot of psychiatrists who think like me, because by the time you're a psychiatrist who thinks like me, you've probably been spat out of the system one way or another. So psychiatrists himself being at the top of the totem pole and thinking like this is pretty rare. I only know a handful of people who meet that criteria. And um, the but there's a lot of people in the in the other uh, other areas of mental health, psychologists and counselors and social workers and Reiki workers and touch therapists and Ayurvedic therapists and stuff who really know that the system is inherently broken and is not a good place to send somebody that you care for or love. Then there's lots of communities with them, but they're not well populated with the actual doctors. That's for sure. And then, where are you with um, realizing that? I mean, yeah, like giving someone drugs when, or someone that is not not taking personal responsibility for what's going on and wanting to better themselves. Is is it absolutely necessary for someone to want to get to that point of wanting to better themselves, or is it if there's someone who just wants to go through life and puts blame on that it's not my whatever it's not my fault it's not um it's not something that i can change and everyone should tiptoe around me is that something that's that's happening that you're seeing or well, certainly that is a, there's a large group of people who are walking around not taking responsibility for their basic life, instead blaming the rough world around them or their parents or their 
siblings or their friends or their spouses or ex-spouses or ex-partners. You know, they blame other people for their hardship. And that's a pretty common common uh, way of managing life. And in fact, you know, that's what psychiatric conditions really are, is that people tend to take on those conditions so that they can blame the condition rather than take responsibility for their life. And then do you say, I mean, how much do you think that's an issue with what's going on with, you know, people being prescribed something to kind of numb that or, you know, allow it to be their existence and reality. What was the first part of the question, please? So, ah, geez. I think, I think it's gone. I think it's, okay. it's out. So I guess it wasn't, was it enough of a question? So um, I guess, then, so as far as, oh, okay, so for prescriptions, how how much of of that do you think is because that that could be helped greatly by just taking responsibility for yourself exactly. and healing the other way as opposed to, you know, because I, I assume that's a yeah, huge way for to bring people in is, to you know have have this external force that's taking me down and mm -hmm. i need to uh and yeah i mean that seems to opens up for yeah medication in a second i mean there's um i mean how how much of a difference could the mindset shift of society to this is something that is i need to work on uh, as opposed to an external force, how much, how much of a, an impact would that mindset change uh, have to society? If people would take responsibility for their lives, right? Yeah, it would have a massive, you know, massive impact. It would change everything, of course, fundamentally. Yep. And so how? How do you think that could happen in a society such as? 2023, uh, even the 2023 USA. It does seem like it's a faraway dream, right? Like a pipe dream. And um, people tend to really just blame others. And it's a, depre a depressing fact that it's, uh, we seem to be a long ways away from a general population just taking responsibility. One way to do it is take responsibility for your life. And then everyone you touch will see that it's possible to take responsibility for your life and you'll open up those gates for the people who are in your circle and hopefully get a ripple effect. Yeah, and I think that's something that's not talked about enough either is the ripple effect of just going and doing it. And, um, you know, if uh, I think I was talking this the other day with someone about with them yeah, stopping drinking, but then... Uh, you know, then their friends don't want to hang out with them because they see that, okay, well, if, if Joe can stop drinking, that means I can too. And, but then, you know, have that part in your head, but without Joe saying, Hey, you guys need to stop drinking. Just, uh, yeah, just there, I mean, the ripple effects pretty powerful and it's, yeah, it's pretty powerful. Easy. Yeah. It's easy to run away from though, too. Yeah. 
And for sure. Yeah, the easy way out seems to seems to be the the driving force between a lot of things these days. And yeah, you know, uh putting in work seems to be, you know, less and less encouraged or you know, I don't know. I don't know if the reward of what comes from that is being suppressed or if it's just yeah just i want the easiest way to do this what can i do where i don't have to do any work right exactly but that's how people go yeah and so it's do you think it's usually when someone comes to you do you think it's usually later than you think they should have come to you or is it no i I don't think so i you know people things happen at exactly the right time i'm pretty serious proponent of that you know things happen exactly when they should and i don't have a i don't have a criticism that they should have happened earlier or should have happened later they just tend to happen exactly at the right time and so when people want to reach out to you or find your work where do they go and do that so one of the best places to find me is at one of my websites called the, the DR Fred, Dr. Fred 360.com, where you can get all the copies. There's a lot of freebies there and you can get copies of my couple of my books and a couple of my courses that I've created. And um, I've created a course called the True Voice course, which actually uses podcasting as a backdrop to help people uh, speak their true voice, just like we're doing today. And then there's a couple of books that I've written called Find Your True Voice and and um, and then the Creative Eight to help people uh, learn how to communicate effectively, how to rediscover that true self and then deliver that into the world. But the best place to find me is at Dr. Fred, drfred360.com or um, my website is also fine, which is uh, welcome to humanity.net. Okay. Excellent. Yeah. Um, yeah. Everyone go check that out. And so the other one is welcome to humanity.net. Welcome to humanity.net. Yeah. Okay. Let me get, get that in there. And you can uh, email me at Dr. Fred at welcome to humanity.net as well. Or, okay. Um, you get a free copy of my uh, creative eight book as well. Um, where you can find that at uh, welcome to humanity.net forward slash creative eight. Dr. Fred, uh, is it okay? Dr. Fred at welcome to humanity.net. Okay, cool. Perfect. Okay. Um, yeah, Dr. Fred, hey, it was great getting to talk with you. I'm happy we got to do this and not knowing where we we're going to go, what we we're going to get to. And yeah, just exciting. We had a to... great conversation. Yeah, really yeah, looking at are... some difficult issues. Yeah, very much enjoyed it. And uh, yeah, hopefully we'll we'll keep in touch here and uh, and talk again sometime soon, all right? I would love that. Thank you so much. Sounds great. Yeah, have a good rest of your day. All right, bye-bye. Thanks, Rusty. Yeah, you bet, Dr. Fred. All right, well, Shitty's doing something. I don't know if you heard that, but Shitty's on to something. So uh, that's, that's my cat. So I don't know. I don't know what he's doing. I assume he's getting into a plant. But you guys, that's Dr. Fred. Uh, there's a lot of ways to communicate with him, and I'll put that all in the show notes. And thank you guys again so much for listening here on the Quantum Global Broadcasting Network, QGBN.
Again, I'm your host, Rusty Diamonds, the Public Access Podcast. And that is the show. Man. It's Rusty Diamond, motherfucker. It's Rusty Diamond, motherfucker. Ernest! 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 <coughs> yes, Pee-wee. You brought the snacks, right?